Hello and welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined on this beautiful Friday by Joe Wolfon. What up? In studio and also uh, on Skype, Jessica Sharo. What's going on? On this episode, we're going to talk about uh, three of the most important games uh, that stuck out to us from this past week, and then we will move on in the second half of the show to talk about and hand out some midseason awards. But uh, let's start with the one that took place last night. Did you guys see what happened between Marcus Morris and uh, Jalen Brown as a big deal, or was it just kind of nothing? But for people who didn't catch it, those two were sort of caught like shoving each other during a timeout, and the Celtics... After beating up really on a really easy part of their schedule, um, really just fell apart against the Heat, just didn't look competitive at all, and uh, some tempers flared. I mean, do you guys think of that as anything there, or is it just, you know, the heat of the moment kind of thing? Pun intended? Maybe. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Those guys have kind of been battling for uh, a spot in the starting rotation all season long. Oh, Um, okay. Uh, it's been a frustrating season, I think, for Jalen Brown, even though he's played a lot better lately. But I don't think it's anything to get too worked up or concerned about. And, I mean, you hear this all the time, like from guys who are, you know, inside of the game and inside locker rooms. It's just the kind of thing that happens pretty much to every team, I think. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it plays itself out in the public eye, and sometimes it doesn't. But I also don't think it's any kind of secret that things haven't gone swimmingly exactly in Boston. Uh, despite the fact that they have put it together lately and that they have, I think, the second-best net, net rating in the whole NBA. Uh, they played some trash teams in the last like month and a half. They have. They, th- their win profile isn't particularly impressive, and I just think, taken as a whole, their season so far has to be looked at as a disappointment. Yeah. So I can understand there being some frustration there and, and tempers kind of flaring over in a game in which... Uh, you know they lost pretty badly after having a really impressive showing against Indiana. Mm-hmm. I think just all the inconsistency that we've seen from them is maybe starting to wear a little bit thin. And like, um, you know, they go on that eight-game winning streak a couple of months back, and then they follow that up with an ugly three-game losing streak. They start to put it together again, and then they have a letdown against Miami. Yeah, um, it doesn't totally surprise me and. Uh, I don't think it's all that much different than what we've seen or heard so far. Again, I think it's just a, a matter of that happening in public, which is obviously not something you want if you're the Celtics, but um, I don't think it's anything to get too concerned about right now. Cash? Um, hot take. I'm going to say this is a, uh, it's kind of a sign of something we've been seeing all year, and I think it's that Brad Stevens like doesn't have a hold of this team the way everyone just assumed Boy Wonder would. Um, just like... I mean, how many team meetings have they had? Like, players-only meetings have they had already this season? Two, three? Brad Stevens, do you guys remember, like, in, in training camp and preseason, Brad Stevens was already going on about how he, like, didn't really necessarily like um, the attitude with which his right. team was, like, going into games and that they, like, weren't as good as they thought they were? I just feel like there's been this, like, weird kind of tension with the Celtics all season. I think a lot of it has to do with what Joe mentioned, if, you know, guys fighting for rotation minutes, it's a deep team. Guys like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Terry Rozier, like those guys emerged as kind of go-to players on a team that got to Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals last year. And now there's a lot of nights when they're just kind of sitting on the sidelines and watching things unfold. It's probably been a frustrating situation for those guys, but I still, like, I don't think this is, you know, there's one moment between Jalen Brown and Marcus Morris is going to tank the team. But I do, as much as I agree with what Joe's saying is these things happen and, and most players will tell you that, when they happen on the sidelines, like during games, on TV, it's just one of those things. I don't know. Could you ever imagine this happening played out um, live and on camera, like on a pop-led team? Probably not. And no. and Stevens just gets that kind of love, or at least did coming into this season. And, and this is another example to me of how like he and his team are still human. Yeah, for They're sure. They're not what everyone thought they were. Not in, like, this mythical presence anyway. Okay, but in fairness, I mean, a lot of drama played out in San Antonio under Pops nose last season, too. I'm just saying, like, during a game, I I feel like there's a level of almost, like, what do you want to call it, focus, like, whatever it is. And I know what happened in Golden State this year, too, but I don't know, for that to happen during a game, for, like, teammates to be shoving each other, I still think it's just, like, such a bad look, and it goes beyond the just, like, oh, like, teammates fight all the time. Because I do think it happens a lot behind closed doors. I think when it gets 
when it happens on the sideline during a game on TV, I just think it takes it to another level. I don't think anyone's surprised that Marcus Morris was involved. Um, just considering sort of his track record and just being a guy who's like, you know, he plays the game emotionally, and that's there, there is a value to that. But um, I think really yesterday, the biggest takeaway I've had from it was just like Al Horford was like shockingly bad throughout that entire game. Um, and it, it's like the Celtics, like they're obviously hurting for front court depth. Like when Robert Williams comes in, when he's like manages not be late for a game or a practice or whatever, like <laughs> he actually is a really important player for them right now because of uh, you know injuries to um, Baines and also Horford's been in and out. He's got tendonitis in his knee, and then you know Daniel Tice just hasn't really been as effective as he was last year. And like they just don't have front court depth, and so like. I think they should make a trade. They should try to just shore up that front court just a little bit, just because I, I don't know. Hor, Hor, like you, Horford just needs to be healthy for this team. Like he's such an important swing player. We saw that in the playoffs last year; he was phenomenal. Um, but if he's banged up already and he has to carry on extra minutes heading into the playoffs just to get the Celtics into a good seed, then I think more disappointments are to come because he is so pivotal to all the Celtics' grand designs. But um, I don't know. I think the more important game that happened last night was Spurs OKC. That was uh, what would you say? Game of the year? Double overtime? Yeah. <laughs> it was up there. Like that fourth quarter and both of those overtimes yeah. were just completely mental. Um, Lamarcus was fifty six points. Yeah, career high. The Spurs hit their first fourteen threes uh-huh. in that game. Uh, Terrence yeah. Ferguson hit seven threes of his own. Yeah. I mean, it was just wild. Like, just one of those games where there was something in the air and it was like one crazy thing piled on top of another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it built to a pretty entertaining crescendo. Although, um, you know, a lot of replay reviews <laughs> toward the end of that game, too. Um, I think the ball touched the but, rim. I think the ball touched the rim. Yeah. <laughs> Man, uh, Reggie Miller was, was, <laughs> was uh, on fire at the end of that one. Um, I mean, credit to him. He was right. When I watched the replay the first time, I was like, there is no earthly way that that hit the rim. But, he, said, he said it touched the rim at least 25 times yeah. during that review. <laughs> um, but Partner. Yeah, I mean, for... Look, Aldridge, like, he really started to go off uh, when Adams hurt his ankle. I mean, he was having a good game before then, but the Thunder are already without Noel. Um, and then Adams goes down, and suddenly it's like every time down the floor, Aldridge is posting, you know, Jeremy Grant or even Patrick, Patrick Patterson on a couple of possessions. And, it, you know, as much as any player in the league, Aldridge is a guy who can kind of take advantage of those post mismatches. Yep. And he's not, he's not the kind of guy who will necessarily like back you under the basket and then score. But if he can get that turnaround shot over you mm-hmm. and just like have even a little bit of daylight to shoot over top, like if he's, in, if he's in the zone, it's automatic. Yeah. Um, and that was sort of what we saw down the stretch. It was uh, like a really impressive performance from him uh, and from the Spurs role players, man. I mean, Derek White just continues to get better yeah. every time I watch him play. He's breaking out like crazy. Um, you know, Bryn Forbes has been great. DeRozan obviously had a, a real off Oof. night, but uh, the rest of that supporting cast really picked him up. I think um, you guys are talking about LaMarcus Aldridge, so I've actually got a, a piece coming on Aldridge, just something short about how kind of under-the-radar excellent his, like, age 32 and 33 seasons have been. And when you look at just kind of, like, NBA history, the the only guys, like big men who have put up these kind of numbers at this age are, are basically the all-time greats. We're talking about, like, Kareem, Shaq, Hayes, um, Hakeem, Ewing. Aldridge is still like at, he's going to be 34 later this year, and he still essentially like gives you 20 points, eight rebounds, and a block in his sleep. And there's just something about you know if you just look at his shot profile, obviously it's not pretty. Like 45% of his shots this year either come from mid range or long two, and only two percent come from three. Last night he had 56 points without attempting a three, but he makes it work clearly. And there's there's just something kind of poetic about watching him go to work uh, in the mid-range and in the post, and he can still cook a lot of really great big men in this league because he just he's got it, man, and he can still feast inside. And it's honestly, it's been really fun to watch, especially when just a couple of years ago it looked like his kind of his days as an elite big man were, were winding down. And just to see the way he's turned it around the last couple of years, I know Pop gets a lot of credit for it too. Um, and like catering things to the way LaMarcus wanted them finally. But it it's just been fun. And you saw the culmination of that. It's not often that a six-time All-Star has his career night in his 13th year at age 33. Yeah, for sure. I, I like the way that LaMarcus has sort of taken ownership of the team, sort of both offensively and defensively. Like, I mean, you know, again, 
everything with San Antonio comes back to pop, and he gets a lot of the credit, and I think he deserves it, man. This is one of the most impressive coaching performances of Greg Popovich's career when you just consider the fact that, look, this team is probably not going to win the championship or anything, but the circumstances that led into this, right, he loses um, Manu, he loses Tony Parker, he loses Kawhi, he loses Danny Green all in one summer, right? He's already lost Tim Duncan, and, like, I mean, there's just so many injuries that besiege the Spurs to start the year. They don't have DeJounte Murray, who was pretty much the most promising guy out of that group. And then you look at where they are now. A, he gets LaMarcus to buy in, right, which hasn't been easy. LaMarcus has sort of been always like, you know, I want to be the number one guy and blah, blah, blah. I want the thing to be catered to me and stuff like that. Like, he's got that to come around. And then also, you look at the guys that he's developed. Like, look at the players that were, um, you know, going toe-to-toe with the Thunder. I mean, Derek White. I mean, how many times did he just come up with a massive defensive play? That block where then he gets um, elbowed by Jeremy Grant on the way down. He took a lot of hard hits, but defensively, I thought he was great. And then also offensively, I mean, he had 23 points. You got Bryn Forbes coming off the bench for four, or coming. Well, he's starting, but he feels like a bench player when everyone's healthy. Um, he's got you know 14 points in that one. He's basically Patty Mills 2.0. Um, you know, you look at Davis Bertans and the way he's developed both like offensively and also defensively. He's like really solid now, like. Yaka Pirtle, I mean, Marco Bellinelli's come back to the Spurs and is, like, one of the most hilarious shot makers in the NBA right now because he just consistently takes, like, crazy shots at crazy angles, and he hits them, right? And that like back-to-back-to-back the, to back to back run he had last night yeah. was pretty fun. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, the Spurs, like, what Pop has done with that bench is, like, classic Spurs, right? Like, everyone moves the ball, everyone, like, cuts, everyone shoots the ball, they play fast. Like, that's old Spurs. And then, like, you have, like, even older, older Spurs, which is, like, throwback play it through the post you got a guy who can go into the you know into the paint like in Demar, and you got Lamarcus obviously in the post and like man I mean this is such an impressive run by the Spurs and quite honestly the Spurs look like they're right there with the Rockets in terms of this in that group and you know in that secondary group behind I guess Denver and Golden State at the top I don't quite buy that you know? just yet okay. no I mean like the health a healthy Rockets team to me is far and away like better than the Spurs like I, I just I respect what the Spurs are doing. I do think they're solid. Uh, I think a lot of this run has been driven by just insanely hot shooting. You don't think they'll shoot 16 of 19 every night? <laughs> I mean, they're a good shooting team, like we've said. They're, they only you know, take in, mint shots. In terms of accuracy, the best three-point shooting team in the league. And, and a lot of that has to do with how selective they are with the threes that they do take, which is you know not a an objectively bad approach but i do think at the end of the day like if they're in a playoff series with the rockets the math is just going to skew so heavily against them that um like they're really just going to have to execute perfectly in order to win a series against a team that has like so much more firepower than they do and i also i don't quite trust the defense just yet i I just want to see a little bit more of it before i'm ready to believe that they've completely turned things around on that end because the transformation has been totally ridiculous basically going from being one of the two worst defensive teams in the league to being one of the five best over the past few weeks um i'm still not crazy about the overall defensive talent on that team even though i think Derek white has actually proven a lot uh, at the defensive end of the floor and um you know, like Rudy Gay, I think, uh, who didn't even play last night, um, but ha- has had, like, really one of the better seasons of his career at both ends. Um, I think they're they're making it work and they're cobbling some interesting stuff together. But over the long haul, like, I, I just – I'm not ready to trust them quite yet. But like you say, I mean, there's been an unbelievable coaching job from Pop yet again. Uh, and it took him a little bit longer to figure it out this year than I feel like we've seen in the past. Which makes sense. He's dealing with a lot of new pieces. For sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, now that he sort of ha- has seemed to uh, have stumbled upon like, a rotation that works yeah. uh, and a formula at both ends that works, um, you know, you trust him to be able to kind of make the mismatch mismatched parts fit. Uh, I just think ultimately, like, they're going to get overwhelmed by more talented teams. Um, so, like, I wouldn't put them in a category with the Rockets, and especially if the Rockets can find a way to get healthy. Uh, I just don't quite see it. But I do think, you know, if you compare them to a team like OKC um, that have uh, similar sort of structural issues, obviously, um, you know, the Thunder still get up a decent number of threes, but like they, and they hit like, I think 15 out of 31 or something like that last night. Like they have had games where they've shot them pretty well, but I don't think they can rely on like Terrence Ferguson to hit seven threes on a consistent basis. 
Cash, where are you with the Spurs right now? Uh, I'm I'm not sure I buy it yet, and here's why. So they're 14 and four in their last 18. Yeah. And the win profile, the win profile sounds great. It's great. They've beaten the Lakers, uh, the Jazz were coming around, the Clippers a couple of times. Celtics. Beat the Raptors, the Celtics, the yep. 76ers, the Thunder last night. It sounds great. The catch is that. Uh, six of those 18 games have been on the road, and they're three and yeah. three in those six games. They're seven and 13 overall on the road. Um, I don't know how much I trust a team that's still that bad uh, when they're not in the confines of home. So the next couple weeks will kind of probably tell us if this is for real. They're at OKC on Saturday to finish this home and home. Right. Um, they go at Dallas, at Minnesota next week. Now neither one of those teams is giant killers, but also a couple of tough places to play dallas like san antonio great at home not so much on the road the week after that they go at philly at new orleans i believe on a back-to-back mm-hmm. so like there are some tests coming that'll probably tell us how real this is it's just i don't know how much of it i can buy when so much of this run has just been them winning games at home and they still have not proven they, they this iteration of the spurs can win on the road okay that's fair enough and you know every year they got that last circus trip and stuff like that so um, we'll see what the Spurs are, but I mean, certainly it's been very impressive so far. I'm 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 a little bit sold on them, just in the sense that I feel like once a team gets an identity and it's a veteran team that knows how to execute, as long as they stay healthy, like I think the Spurs. I mean, this it, it feels silly saying this, but like, yeah, the Spurs are going to win 50 games and they're going to go to the playoffs. And I think if they do that, then that's ultimately a huge success for the Spurs because. You know, all the turmoils they gone through last year, like this year, is just like the expectations were so low and. They really do feel like they're exceeding them. And then the other the other game that really stood out for me from this week um, was Bucks rockets right? Um, the Bucks obviously have been really impressive, but, you know, like the Spurs, a lot of their wins have come at home. They've had a home-heavy uh, first half of the season. Um, but they finally go on the road. They play the Rockets, who are red hot. I think they had won 10 straight at home. James Harden obviously is doing his, you know, Allen Iverson basic impersonation. And, um, yeah, the Bucks went in there. They had a great defensive strategy against James Harden, and – they came away with the win. I mean, uh, Wolfon, I saw you researching some of this stuff. So what did you think of the defense against Harden and especially sort of, um, you know, sort of the flexibility that the Bucks might have defensively? Um, well, for one thing, I think it spoke to something that's been kind of an underrated aspect of their defensive turnaround this year, which right. is how good their guards have been. Right. Um, and Bledsoe is... Bledsoe has been so, so yeah. much better at that end than he was last season. Um and Brogdon, who's another guy I want to talk about later on, but yeah. um, he's been really solid too. And I think the reason that their pick-and-roll scheme, I think, has worked as well as it has, I mean, with the way that they drop their bigs back, like, it's really incumbent upon those guys to be able to fight over top of screens and make sure that, like, the ball handler and the pick-and-roll is going to feel them. And they've done a really good job of that. And obviously... Um, it's a bit of a different approach that they took with Harden. Like they basically just shaded him so far toward his right hand that it was like uh, the Rockets a lot of time like wouldn't even bother to try and like set a high screen. Harden mm-hmm. would just basically waltz into the paint, uh, and then the Bucks would try and either force him into like a difficult floater or a contested layup or collapse on him and like try and force a turnover once he got there. Yeah, and I think Harden found some counters to that as he's gonna do like he's too skilled an offensive player to just be like shut down by one type of coverage he did have 42 points and we're praising their defense he had 42 points but he had what eight turnovers yeah Um, he had the thing is yeah the key is he shot 13 of 30 from the field yeah uh, and then also nine turnovers and only six assists i mean the thing that was really impressive to me was that he still managed to get 16 threes up considering that their whole strategy was basically to run him off of the three-point line um but obviously like even with them shading him toward his right hand like he was able to get some step backs off Mm -hmm. uh and then a couple of times like the rockets would come and they would still set a screen like toward his right hand but he would just snake back and get to his left yeah um when like the ball handling defender was forced to go over top so they have some counters to it but i just think that's the kind of stuff that teams are gonna like have to do like they have to get a little bit experimental yeah um and this you know to me was a little bit similar to how the Raptors played Harden last year in that game that they won in Toronto with it snapped the Rockets 17 game win streak it was a little bit more aggressive than that yeah but it's the same idea it's like take away the three-point line and then um you know kind of figure it out from there it's like you you can't let him have everything that he wants Mm -hmm. 
take away one element and then see what you can do with the other one. Right. And obviously him being the player that he is, like he, he is still going to find ways to be extremely effective, but um, there are certain things that you're going to have to be willing to live with, I think. Um, and so I just thought all those guards, whether it was um, uh, Bledsoe or Brogdon or George Hill. Yeah. Um, George Hill is a nice pickup for them. He was. He, he fits I mean, them perfectly. I mean, yeah. He's basically just like Brogdon light. Like they, yeah. They now they just the have the same all thing. their minutes a guard can basically be go to these like versatile three and D guys um, that can also drive it a little bit, but can definitely play defense are definitely long in terms of point guards. Like you go look at all three of these guys, Bledsoe, Hill, um, Brogdon, they're all pretty big in terms of point guards. And then occasionally you could bring in a Sterling Brown who's been really solid too off the bench. I mean, he's hitting a really high clip from deep right now and he's playing surprisingly good defense as well. And yeah, I mean, if you just look at the roster as a whole, like I just think, what Boonholzer is doing with that team. I mean, we will talk about it in the second half of the podcast when we talk about midseason awards and, you know, coach of the year and things like that. But I just think every single piece on the roster fits and makes sense, which is just something that the Bucks didn't have last year. Like, you know, what I said about the Spurs and having an identity. Like, the Bucks came into this year knowing exactly what their identity was on both ends of the floor. And, like, they have won so many great wins. I mean, realistically, if you look at the Bucks, they have probably been right there with the Nuggets as the most impressive teams in the NBA. And I'm only putting the Nuggets there, too, because the Nuggets have been playing in the West, right? But, the, I mean, the Bucks have beaten every single, like, tough opponent that's been put ahead of them, right? I mean, they lost to the Raptors recently, but even then, they were very competitive, and they held the Raptors bench for five points. So, Cash, I mean, what, what did you make of that game, and what were your big takeaways from Bucks-Rockets? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty obvious very early that they were taking away Harden's left hand, Yeah, which I feel like is one of those things that's very easy to say on, like, um, a talk show, Paul Pierce and Chauncey Billups were all about it going into the game, but I think it's a lot harder to actually execute when you're on the court, when we know how crafty Harden is. Um, so that's the thing that stuck out the most, and the Bucks were able to take away his left hand and actually force him right more than any team we've seen so far this season. Harden ends up having a bad game, having said that, when you add the assists, everything all together, he still, I went through it, uh, the Rockets still end up with like 1.26 points per possession on possessions that end in a hardened uh, a hardened individual possession or a pass whatever like they still had an efficient game with Harden running the show which is kind of crazy because again it was another one of those games where it looked it looked terrible but it somehow worked in terms of how impressive the bucks have been yeah the, the only thing i'll take issue with what you guys were talking about was george hill has been pretty trash for them like he was solid in that game really but since they picked him up if you go through his games and even like a few of the games i've watched um him play for them like he's been pretty trash and i think george hill is like just about done if you look at his performance really? over the last wow. couple of years this guy looks washed i mean he was washed when he was not motivated to play in sacramento and i thought he had some nice moments in the playoffs last year for for the Cavs. and minus that missed free throw that led to the jr smith you know yeah meme well i'll say this i, I think that his offense hasn't really been there. Like he's not shooting yeah, the ball sure. well, which I don't necessarily expect to continue. Like, but he's running the offense well. You know what I mean? Like the second unit for the Bucks really needed somebody who could just like come yeah. in and set up the the, the the team. He's just super passive, I think, at this point in time. Like he it's very funny. rarely looks for his own offense, and he can kind of like fade in and out. But I do yeah. think that his defense can still be pretty effective, at least yeah. as an on-ball guy. And they don't need him to do much more than that. Uh, like I, I still think that's a good pickup considering what they gave up to get him and I think he'll have a role to play for them at some point in the playoffs and, and just like having a guy who can spot up and hit threes and also play solid on ball defense and slide basically right into their defensive scheme without issue is still really valuable um, you know the, the, he, he just fits what they're doing well and that's basically been the Bucks ethos all season it's not really about how good a player is necessarily so much as it is about like how they can maximize that guy's skills Mm -hmm. and that's what's brought them so much success right it's figuring out exactly what every guy does well and putting them in uh, positions to succeed and uh, everything every move that they have made has been geared toward this idea of their team construct and not necessarily about uh, one particular individual and I feel like George Hill is a guy who can basically slide in and fit into what they're doing perfectly well so um, as much as I agree, like he hasn't played especially well, like uh, a game like that against the Rockets, is a good example to me of how he can still be effective. Yeah, and if you look at the on-off numbers right now, um, the Bucks are three points per hundred possessions better on offense with George Hill on the floor, and then also uh, five points better defensively with George Hill on the floor. Now, part of that is him playing with the bench, but I mean, like, still, I just think that you know. Y- 
you're right, Cash. I mean, like, it, the numbers are overall not that impressive. Like, he's averaging six points a game, and he's shooting, like, like 26% from deep. But I just think that, like, Hill fits the identity of the team really well. Um, and, you know, going back to what you said, Wolfon, most of those reasons are why I have Mike Budenholzer as my coach of the year. But uh, we'll talk about coach of the year, most valuable player, and, uh, you know, all the important midseason awards um, after this break. Hey, listeners, a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. We also urge you to check out our other shows on the Scores Podcast Network. For baseball fans, there's Expand the Zone, Sweeper Keeper, Covers the World of Soccer, and there's the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. Please also download the Score app where you can find all our feature content, live scores, and the most up-to-date breaking news. Thank you, and back to Pound the Rock. All right, welcome back to the second half of Pound the Rock, Steer here with Cash and Wolfon. We are going to run down our midseason awards. Each of us has filled out a top three ballot for each respective award. So we'll start with most valuable player at the halfway mark. I have James Harden as my number one, Giannis is number two, and LeBron is number three. Um, so we both have some combination of Harden and Giannis as one and two. I'm the only one that has Harden number one. Um, I just think that in terms of the context of his team's production, um, Harden, like the Rockets have basically suffered through so many injuries and sort of setbacks and things like that. And that, you know, Harden has basically had to step up to this level. Like the only reason the Rockets are even back in this conversation is because James Harden is hitting a peak that, you know, on the last time we, the three of us did a podcast together. I mean, you know, putting aside that Timberwolves uh, episode, which was great, by the way, with John Krasinski at the Athletic. Um, We talked about how like James Harden is on that, like, Kobe peak Kobe season level right where he averaged 35 and Harden's almost right there and without that if Harden didn't hit this level I think the Rockets might actually be looking at a situation where you really have to think about the future of the team um, and whether or not they can even make the playoffs so right now they look very solidly in the playoffs and most of that's Harden so I mean you know why do you guys have Harden number two behind Giannis or why do you have Giannis ahead of them uh, Harden now I guess yeah, for me, it's a pretty easy thing, and it's just that, you know, the MVP is supposed to be a whole-season award, and as absolutely insane as James Harden has been the last month or so, let's not forget that the first month-plus of the season, we were talking about how his defense had reverted to, like, old-school Harden, where it was a complete joke, and Giannis, on the other hand, has been the best player on the team right now that has the best record in basketball, while just dominating on both ends, like, Giannis is going to get some love when we talk about defensive player of the year later. He's been that good on that end while carrying the offense um, of the best team on the other end. The Bucks are, I believe, top five um, on offense and defense. Again, Giannis is the catalyst for like both those things. I just think that it would be a disservice to how good and consistent Giannis has been, and really the, the Bucks have been on both ends, to reward Harden for what has been an insane month, but a month at the end of the day. Yeah, I came close to putting Harden ahead of Giannis here. Um, and the reason is, and, and this is like a thought that occurred to me while watching that uh, Bucks rockets game, is just that if you look at the offensive profiles of the uh, Rockets and Bucks, they're very similar. Like, they're both extremely focused on getting uh, paint shots and three-point shots. Uh, like, they have the two highest three-point attempt rates in the league. But for... Harden, like, he is making all of that stuff happen himself, whereas Giannis is, you know, contributing to setting up those three-point shots, but he's not the one who's taking them. And that makes him just, like, a little bit more of a defensive, uh, a dependent, sorry, offensive player, um, where, like, he can't really control those outcomes. And I just think that that's, there's, like, an, an interesting distinction there where he needs his teammates to knock down shots in order for that offense to actually function successfully. Uh, whereas Harden, like, it's really all on his shoulders. Like, he is creating those shots for himself and for his teammates. Um, so he has a larger role and a larger responsibility uh, to lift that Rockets offense up. And, and the way that he's been able to do that, like, with so many injuries on that team and the, the minimal help that he has around him has been staggering. Uh, but I... I Basically, I put Giannis ahead uh, for all the reasons that Cash mentioned, like his ability to get it done at both ends of the floor, the consistency with which he has done it from the start of the season to now, mm-hmm. um, and just the fact that you know, like the best team in the league, uh, 
completely revolves around him and everything that he does and everything that he provides. Um, I just had to give him the edge, but it is a slight edge. And I think right now this is a two person race. Um, I also thought it was interesting that we have three very different uh, candidates as the third spot on our MVP ballots. I got LeBron. Um, I think that's almost self-explanatory. Like you look at what the Lakers have been without him. Um, and Le- I mean, look, LeBron's having one of a great year yet again, right? He's not playing much defense, but He's hugely important, but um, Cash, you put Jokic up there, and Wolfon, you put Paul George up there. Real quick, make the case for uh, Jokic and then Paul George. I mean, who the hell had the Nuggets as the number one team in the West halfway through the season? Literally no one. Yeah, I don't even think okay. Nuggets fans thought that. Like no. This team just would have been happy to get back in the playoffs after being eliminated on Game 82 the last couple of years. And as good as that team is and as well as they've been constructed – Nikola Jokic is the focal point. What this guy is doing is obviously on the offensive end is just insane. Mm-hmm. He is an offense unto himself. He's, you know, we talk about him being the best passing big man we've ever seen. Like he's just straight up one of the best passers I've ever seen. Did you guys see that play last night yeah. or two nights ago where he, he caught the ball off a rebound like one hand and in one fell swoop just went from catching the defensive rebound to throwing like an eighty yard pass down the court to I can't remember who. Jamal Murray. Things received from this guy are insane and and his defense has improved and. His improved and smarter defense has been a big, um, a big part of why the Nuggets are all of a sudden a, a factor on the defensive end. I just think, obviously, LeBron's a better player. No one's arguing that. But um, if you kind of prorate this over an 82 season, LeBron has now missed quite a chunk of the year, and that would usually go a ways towards disqualifying a guy in the MVP race. And I just think Jokic's consistency has to be rewarded. What he's doing on the offensive end on the offensive end for a team that has no business being first in the West is crazy. Uh, all good points. Um, and I think, you know, he has a great case to be on that ballot. For me, uh, Paul George has just been, like, so good as a two-way player. Yeah. Um, and it's similar to why I have Giannis number one. Like, his defense has been unbelievable. And the fact that he has the energy to defend the way that he does, which is – it's – like applying a ton of ball pressure all the time, but doing that like without being too handsy, without fouling a lot, but creating a ton of deflections yeah. uh, and a ton of steals and just being like hellaciously disruptive all the time uh, to also managing to take the reins of the Thunder offense for long stretches mm-hmm. and to do so extremely efficiently. Like he shot the ball extremely well. Um, he scored well at the rim and... I just think he looks totally in control. He he plays like extremely calm. Um, you know, he's never rushed. He gets to his spots and uh he's just shown the capability to take over games uh at both ends in a way that I don't think anybody else in the league outside of Giannis has really done this season. So mm. that's why uh he's third on my ballot. Fair enough. Also, um going back to the Jokic thing and the and Nuggets fans, like do you guys remember two years ago when uh, Nuggets fans like applauded Russell Westbrook for getting that triple double because he like finally <laughs> yeah. got an assist to like Samaj Kristen and like that was the night to that break the, the record. But that was also the night the Nuggets were knocked out of the playoffs and that's yeah. what they were cheering for. And then that roster till now, they've added a couple pieces um, and some of their players have gotten better. But like now they're like the best team in the West, and that's just just funny to think about. Um, let's move on to most improved player. A couple of great candidates here. Um, I got Siakam number one, Pascal Siakam, uh, DeMontis Sabonis number two, and then I got Darren Fox number three. Um, you know, Cash and Wolfon, you guys both have Fox um, number two, or sorry, number one, and then, you know, Cash has Siakam, and then he has Doesn't Matter. It was a little bit strange. But uh, Wolfon, you got uh, Vucevic and Brogdon. Strange. There's no no one else has a shot at this award. I'm sorry. So you're saying it's really just down to Fox and Siakam? Yes. I, I don't think anyone else is even in the realm of possibility. Okay. All right. Well, then, Wolfon, then explain to us then why you have Vucevic and Brogdon and you don't have Siakam on there at all. I know you love Pascal. I do. I think he's fantastic. I just think I saw a lot of this from him last year. And and I think oh, so much. Hold ma- on. What? You saw this from him last year? Not this, but I saw he's a lot of it. He's broke his career high like five times already this okay, year. Okay, but I think for him more than the other guys who are on my ballot, it's yeah. been a question of opportunity where I think okay. the guys that I've been looking at are are players who haven't necessarily gotten an increase in minutes or touches or role or responsibility. Mm-hmm. They've just gotten better. And not that Siakam hasn't gotten better. Uh, I just don't know that the the skill leap that he has made is on a par with with the guys that I put, which is 
I mean, De'Aaron Fox was like a completely different player this year. Yeah. And um, I did not see this kind of a leap from him coming. He's gotten so much better at every aspect of the game. Um, and I think he gets extra points for completely transforming the Kings and their trajectory. A team he is would, like a franchise player now. He is. And it's like if you look at what we thought the Kings were coming into the season compared to what we think they might be now, it's like completely different. Right. You know, like he has truly altered the course of that franchise. And I think I, I think he deserves extra credit for that. Um, and then Vucevic, who when I look at this award, I think the guys that I like to focus on are guys, you know, not necessarily who are developing along the kind of uh, uh, progression or development curve that you would expect. Um, kind of like Oladipo last year, where it's somebody who you feel like has plateaued. You think you know what they are as a player, and then sort of out of nowhere, they become something different and something new. And and Vucevic has been that guy to me this year, where it's like um, he, he's just able to dominate at the offensive end of the floor in ways that I hadn't seen from him before. Right. He's so much more confident and assertive. He's shooting the ball so much better. Um, he he's He's a guy you would love to see on a – a good team yeah just and I, to see his full potential and i wrote about uh yesterday um about you know what the magic should do with vucevic uh because they're at this point right now where suddenly they have this elite big man and a sure thing on their roster which is something they haven't had for so long they haven't had an all-star since they traded dwight howard seven years ago so i think you know it's not an easy decision like should they flip him he's going to be a free agent um but uh, at the same time, I don't know if they can afford not to trade him right now, given that, unfortunately, they're not really going anywhere with him on the team right now. But mm-hmm. uh, I just think like he's made such a, a wild and unexpected leap this season that I had to give him a bit of love. Um, and then my third guy, I kind of put Malcolm Brogdon on here just because I wanted to shout him out because I don't feel like he gets enough love. Yeah. But to me, he has like, streamlined his game uh, in such a meaningful and impressive way. And he's gotten so much more effective attacking off the catch. He just has these straight line drives where he gets right to the rim and nobody can seem to like push him off of his drive or push him off his spot. He gets pretty much whatever he wants. And he's shooting like this is his shooting line for this season. Um, He's shooting 52% from the field, 43% from three, almost 99% from the free throw line (laughs) Yeah, for a 63% true shooting percentage. And yeah, um, you know, pair that with really solid defense uh an ability to attack mismatches and i think there's a case to be made that he's been the second best player on the bucks this year i know you know middleton obviously gets most of the love uh brooke lopez has got a ton of love for the way that he's transformed his game uh to suit the bucks needs this season nobody ever really talks about brogdon and uh i just think he deserves a lot of credit for how good that team has been look i think malcolm brogdon shooting is off the charts i think he's you can make the argument he's the most improved shooter in the NBA. But I just don't think we can put Brogdon in the same... If we're just going like overall skill set, like whole rounded game improvement year to year, I really am not joking when I say it doesn't matter after De'Aaron Fox and Pascal Siakam because I think the leaps those guys have taken are so far beyond what anyone else can kind of prove to me in the second half of the year. I just want to say one thing about Siakam. Yeah. Like, if you look at how good the Raptors bench was this year and what that bench has looked like uh, this year, like uh, he is the difference. He was the bench yeah. mob, exactly. Yeah, and the mob of one. And I know, you know, th- there there are a number of reasons that the Raptors bench has been poor this year. Injuries have played a part in it. CJ Miles' drop off has been a big part of it. Uh, He's Fred not even Van, playing anymore. Fred VanVleet has had his share of struggles, but. The biggest difference to me is that Siakam is a starter this year. Yeah. And I didn't expect him to be. I picked him as the sixth man of the year before the season started. Mm-hmm. Um, but he made that unit go last year, and that's why I'm, like, maybe not giving him enough credit for the leap that he has made. And, again, right. I want to emphasize, like, I think he's a wonderful player, has a pretty decent all-star case, mm-hmm. um, and has certainly improved this year. I just I saw a lot of this from him last year, and, and I can't say the same for the guys that I put on my list. Okay, moving on to Rookie of the Year. We have the identical ballot here. We all have Luka Doncic's number one, which is, like, no one's even close, really. DeAndre Aiden, number two, and then Jaron Jackson is three. Um, this, is, this is the award where you can say, it, like, after Doncic, it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, it literally doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, Aiden is, like, shooting 60% from the field, grabbing a ton of rebounds, averaging a double-double. But, like, I don't know, man. None of that matters. I don't know. It's, like, weird because I don't want to criticize rookies for empty stats because, like, rookies almost universally land on bad teams. But, like, when you watch the Suns play and stuff, like, it's, like, a lot of empty stats. And then – but, I mean, the fact that he's shooting 6% is, is impressive. Um, but we got to see how he develops defensively. And then Jackson, I mean, he's contributing. His numbers are not as impressive as compared to someone like Trey Young. But I think Trey Young's been so wildly erratic. Like, he's always had so many turnovers, and he's shooting such a poor percentage that you look at Jackson. I mean, the Grizzlies aren't really that competitive anymore, um, although they did beat the Spurs recently. But, I mean, Jackson has sort of had a lot of great moments um, for a team that's reasonably competitive. So that's that was my thinking. I'm assuming that was the same for you guys. Yeah, okay. we could jump ahead to defensive player of the year. All right, <laughs> there, there's Luka no Dacic argument. Is 19 years old and already the best player on a team hanging around the West playoff race. Yeah, that's it's great, man. And it's very clear that like Luca, based on like all the marketing and hype, like he is going to be one of those future stars. That I mean, obviously, you don't want to like put this much expectation on somebody, but like he is going to be one of the faces of the league for the next decade. Um, and he's already shaping up that way, so hopefully he continues to do so. All right, let's talk about Defensive Player of the Year then, all right? So we go from the most predictable awards in Rookie of the Year to Defensive Player of the Year. Um, we have surprising overlap, but I really, really struggled um, to fill out my ballot. I ultimately had Miles Turner from Indiana, Giannis, number two, and then also Paul George, number three. Cash had Miles Turner as well, Paul George, and Giannis, so just the last two switched. Wolfon, you got Turner, Paul George, and Robert Covington. Um it's it's a little bit surprising that we all finished with Miles Turner as number one. But uh, as the resident Pacers stand over here, tell us about uh, Miles Turner and you know because he's not really a guy that his name pops up that much. But when you really look at the numbers and you look at how the Pacers have defended, Turner has been incredible. Uh, yeah, I mean I've been banging this drum basically since the beginning of the season. Uh, his interior defense has been as good as any player in the league, and I think he leads the NBA in blocks. He does, and it's it's not just that. Like the blocks are obviously very nice, but like his his positioning inside has just gotten so much better, and he's been such uh, a deterrent at the rim. And I was already kind of leaning this way, um, but it was really hammered home for me when I watched that Pacers Celtics game when Turner didn't play. Uh, I think he's out with a broken nose right now, and the Celtics, a team that has struggled in part this year because they haven't really been able to score inside just beat the crap out of the Pacers inside like they got whatever they wanted at the rim and um you know just Turner's absence there was so stark to me um and I think he has been by far the biggest reason that they have had so much defensive success obviously um you know like there are other reasons for that like I think um Thaddeus Young has had his best defensive season um but the whole like the the Pacers defensive system is geared toward kind of like funneling guys toward the rim and that's where Turner is usually waiting um and and he's made that whole system go just with his ability to affect shots uh and be in the right place at the right time he's got like a weird Serge Ibaka trajectory yeah, that's interesting. I yeah. mean, because like, like it was like Lamarcus was like the comp that he got yeah. when he first came in, and I don't think he was like as wiry as Ibaka was. Right, he looked a little bit more plodding, but I think he's like really like first off reshaped his body so that he's a lot lighter now, and he's, like, sure. you could tell his activity on defense is a lot higher. And he is kind of Ibaka like, you know, he, he got the jumper too. Like yeah. it's rare to find a stretch five. Yeah, and like the 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 difference there, I guess, is he started out shooting threes, whereas Ibaka yeah, that kind of came to him later. Um, We'll but see yeah, if he can Turner. ever get to Ibaka's Dirk Nowitzki level mid range shooting. But yeah, well, yeah. look, he's been pretty good on those pick and pops from mid range. Right. Um, I would honestly like to see him pop to three point range uh, more often. But that's everybody on the Indiana. Yeah. Um, but yeah, defensively, he's just been fantastic. And I think you said it like in a season in which there isn't really one clear cut candidate. Yeah, um, he takes the cake for me. Cash, what have you seen from Turner? Yeah, I think for me the biggest thing has just been how if you look at how elite their defense has been all year and the way it's kind of cratered recently in these uh, few games without Turner, uh, that's kind of the final icing on the cake evidence I needed for a guy that I was already leaning that way anyway. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, let's move on to six man of the year. Um, this is another case where there's a lot of candidates, but uh, 
I had Derrick Rose number one, Spencer Dimitri number two, Julius Randle number three. Cash had uh, Montrez Harrell, uh, Derrick Rose, and Spencer Dinwiddie. And then Wolfon had Harrell, Sabonis, and Dinwiddie. Um, okay, so the one commonality we have on all three of these is Dinwiddie. So let's talk about him. I was very close to putting him number one because his numbers are right there ahead of Derrick Rose. I don't think – the only reason I had Rose number one is because, like, I just think, like – He's been in the or he's been Minnesota's second best player all year, which is just really strange. But um, Dinwiddie has really come on strong, especially since Levert's injury, uh, and I think he's sort of making the Nets. In, they're almost forcing the Nets into making a difficult decision between like which of these three guards are you keeping moving forward? Because like Dinwiddie's already like signed his contract, so he's going to be here. But like if Levert comes back healthy or whatever, like. Who knows? Maybe D'Angelo Russell moves on. But, like, they've consistently been able to play these guards and pick and roll. And, like, I think out of all those guys, Dinwiddie has really, really succeeded in that role. And he's also just a really likable guy. Like, it's not a surprise that he has such a, like, huge fan base uh, for a guy that's otherwise relatively obscure. I mean, he's averaging 17 points. He's got five assists per game. Um, he's shooting 36%. A lot of these are pull-up threes. He's, he's a really good slasher at the rim. He gets to the free throw line a ton. I mean, he's just a very impressive player overall. Yeah, and to, the biggest improvement I've seen from him is just his finishing at the rim, where yeah. he's always been pretty average to below average and has been, I think, 95th percentile for his position this year, shooting 67% in the restricted area. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just gotten so much better and more crafty as a finisher, yep. um, like using his lower body and like using his offhand a lot of the time to create that midair separation. Yeah, he's uh, got a bit of McCollum to his game almost. He does, and I think he he's like using his length a little bit more to finish right like right. he'll have those finishes where he's a few feet away from the rim and he looks like he's well covered and going to be well contested and then he'll just kind of extend his arm out and and finish over or underneath like a bigger guy just um by getting that full extension um he i don't know man to me he's just like uh, a really really efficient player he's got like 60 percent true shooting um and it's also like if you look at this award you want a guy who obviously comes off the bench and 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 gives you a jolt of energy but i think also you want somebody who is a finisher like somebody who 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 finishes games and dinwiddie does that for the nets um very clutch and he's kind of like their go-to option down the stretch i think in close games so i give him a lot of credit for that cash talking about uh harold Oh, yeah. I was just saying, too, with Dinwiddie, like, everyone thought the Nets were done when Levert went down because they were in the midst of that kind of brutal losing streak where they were losing all those heartbreakers, and they rebounded so well, and it's kind of coincided with Dinwiddie bouncing back. Yeah. Uh, Harrell's been awesome. Um, Just when you talk about, like, energy guys, you know, usually the six-man award goes to a guard like Lou Williams, like a chucker. Um, Jamal Crawford comes to mind. But when you talk about, like, an energy guy off the bench, Montrose Harrell is – the definition of that kind of player. The guy's essentially averaging 16.7 rebounds, a couple dimes, over a block a game in 25 minutes off the bench. He's played in almost every Clippers game. He's been, other than Tobias Harris and I guess Gallo scoring, their most consistent player, he just kind of brings everything you want out of a bench, big man, forward, whatever you want to call him. um, The Clippers, I'm still not convinced they have an all-star, although Harris is getting close, but they just have so many good players and, and... Harold leads an awesome bench unit. Yeah, and Harold's a guy where like he's so energetic and so physical that you just have to deal with him every single game. Like he is like a souped up version of Tristan Thompson, at least on the offensive glass, or like uh, even Kenneth Farid. I mean, Kenneth Farid really has fallen off, and he doesn't even basically see minutes anymore. I guess he's playing with the Nets. It's real random what happened to Kenneth Farid in his career because he had a lot of hype. But um, yeah, I mean, Harold is just like. I would hate to have to play against him every single night. In terms of bringing energy off the bench, like that is the definition of that. Um, and I'm I'm really happy that uh, you know he's getting his recognition because it honestly looked like last year when he had a bit of a breakout and then he got he got hurt and it was like who's going to sign him and then you know he ended up re-signing with the Clippers on a really cheap deal. Like his next contract is going to be massive because he, I think he has starting like potential to be honest yeah. he just puts so much pressure on the rim like yeah. he's such a bulldozer just looking yeah. to get to the rim every single time and he's not and that big that's the thing so like it's all hustle and heart with the guy yeah well yeah. i think he's he's very strong um he is strong but he's like six eight yeah yeah i feel like whenever you have like these type of players those like kind of energy go 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 guys they're usually like not good finishers or maybe i'm just thinking that because like right. reggie evans and like quincy <laughs> ac come to mind but harold's like shooting 63 percent. obviously yeah. most of his touches are inside and i just feel like 
Like, Montrez Harrell plays with the energy in which Steve Ballmer watches a game. Like, if <laughs> Steve Ballmer was a basketball yeah. player, like, he'd be, his energy would come out in Montrez Harrell. But he's also got a bit of a post game, you know? It's not yeah, just does. pure energy. He's not Reggie Evans. Like, it, like, he has a little bit of finesse and some nice touch around the hoop. Mm-hmm. Um, one guy I want to shout out who was, like, kind of a narrow miss on my ballot yeah. is Monty Morris. Like, Oh, yeah, he's come on strong recently. Yeah. That Nuggets bench has also been so good, and he's kind of been the captain. Him and him and Plumley uh, have been the captain of that bench. Yeah, uh, he's shooting forty three percent from three. Takes yep. incredible care of the basketball. Um, he's averaging four assists a game. So I think point seven turnovers. And that's uh, what he did in uh, in uh, in college too. Yeah, and it was like people were just like really skeptical whether he can translate or not. But now he's like a modern day Jose Calderon. That was a great pick. At what they get him fifty one. Yeah, the Nuggets have a really good scouting staff. I mean, it's yeah. really coming out now. But you look at Wancho. You look at like you got Jokic in the second round. Even Nurkic has like been a really important player for the Blazers, yeah. and they traded him. Gary Harris seventeenth overall, I think. Yeah, I mean, like he's man. playing well with Murray too. Like when they're on the court together, it's yeah. actually worked better than I thought. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, let's move on to Coach of the Year. All right, uh, I have Mike Boonholzer and. All the reasons listed are, you know, the ones that, uh, you know, Wolfon outlined in the first half of the podcast when we talked about the Bucks. Got Greg Popovich is a very narrow two, and the way Pop is coaching right now, I think he might very well be number one at the end of the year. And then Nate McMillan, third. Cash has Bud McMillan and Mike Malone, third. And Wolfon has McMillan, number one. Um, Boonholzer, number two. And Malone, number three. Um, I mean, Pacers, man, make the case for the Pacers head coach. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, you don't have Bud number one. I think... Because he feels number one to me. Well, it's tough. I, I think... I've talked about this before. I think a lot of the stuff that he has done with this team uh, was intuitive. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying that it was easy or simple. I still give him a lot of credit for the system that he's put in place and the way that he has transformed this team. Uh-huh. I think it looks better in light of his predecessors. Um. But I, I do think he deserves a ton of credit. That's why he's second on my ballot. Um, and I just think that McMillan is doing more with less. Like, I yeah. I look at that Pacers roster, and yeah, they have a lot of pretty good players. Um, but, I mean, Oladipo has not been as good as he was last year. Um, and then, you know, they don't have any other elite players on that team. They just have a bunch of guys who play super, super hard. Yeah. They are extremely precise. They move the ball really, really well. They execute their sets. And defensively, it's like there are just very few breakdowns. They yeah. defend on a string. They help and recover. They close out to the three-point line. Like Everything they do is just, um, and I don't know if you can say it's a product of good coaching. I just have to give him credit for uh, how prepared that team is every night, how hard they play. And, you know, the fact that they're on a 54-win pace, uh, given the roster that they have, I think is really, really impressive. And um, I think McMillan deserves a ton of credit for that. Offensively, I have a bit of skepticism. Uh, like, I'm on record saying I think they should be playing a little bit faster, that they don't shoot enough threes, um, they don't get to the free throw line a ton. So, you know, I have some concerns about them offensively, but... Uh, I, I don't think McMillan could be doing a whole lot more to maximize the talent he has on the roster. I think, um, I mean, I went with Bud. I, I actually had McMillan, too, because I don't think he gets enough credit mm-hmm. um, for how good the Pacers have been for a year and a half now with a deep but not necessarily great, like, star-laden roster. I, I'm going with Bud, though, just because I think I don't I don't think there's a coach in the league who uh, whose arrival has just, like, resonated with a team the way Buds has. You just look at the way this team has been maximized and like if you put Jason Kidd or Joe Prunty, Jesus, remember Joe Prunty? Yeah. Like, that was a coach in the NBA. If you put if you just no, replace that was like with them right now, like it's an easy assumption, but the Bucks are probably just that same like mid forties win team that's not getting out of the first round. Bud just unlocked something in this team and it's so simple. He just changed their shot profile and figured if we surround um, an unstoppable force with Giannis like Giannis with shooters and launch a bunch and open up the floor for him, he'll be further unstoppable and as a team will be kind of unstoppable. And he's found something on the defensive end. Like Joe was talking about how prepared the Pacers are under McMillan. Well, you know, we opened the podcast talking about 
um, the way the Bucks defended Harden last night and how it was better than any other team has so far. And it was a very simple concept, taking away his left hand, but it worked. Yeah. And to me, that's also a product of coaching, right? Like, Bud has his team prepared. He's got them playing the best style of ball they can to maximize their superstar and their roster. And they've got the best record in the NBA because of it. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the, the, the talent has not upgraded that much. You know what I mean? Like, he's really just gotten a lot of these players to play better and impose a style on him. But um, I, I'm, I'm really happy that you guys have uh, – I mean, I don't really have to say anything about Popovich. I mean, it's, you know, Pop is self-explanatory. But I'm really happy you guys put Malone on the list because he – I mean, wasn't there, like, rumors that, like, he might not be long for the job and stuff like that? And there was, like, a lot of expectations. And, like, can you imagine where this team would be if they had actually changed the head coaching position? Because I feel like – Malone's toughness and intensity has really gotten through to his team, whereas like a lot of those young guys, it's the hardest thing in the NBA right now um, is to get your young guys to defend consistently, and that's what they're doing. And he's even getting a guy like Jokic and Murray, who are not necessarily excellent defenders, but he's gotten these guys to really defend. And then he's suffered through these injuries as well, and he's kept them afloat. I mean, yeah, I mean, just give some give some love to Mike Malone for sure. Michael, I don't know Michael he, Malone. Sorry, I don't, I don't know what he likes to be called. I think Michael. Yeah, yeah. Um, but was he ever on the hot seat though? Because he got that contract well, extension like before the season even started. It was like weird. I just remember people on Twitter being like speculating, like you know, they might change the head coach. It was strange. The circumstances I, I behind it was a bit strange. That they even though he got the extension, I think everyone expected like if they didn't make the playoffs this season, he was done just because of the heartbreak of the last couple of years. But. I mean, yeah, forget making the playoffs. Again, they're holding the one seed in the West right now midway through the year despite injuries that in years past would have debilitated them. Uh-huh. It's just crazy how successful they've been able to be with, with some of the guys that are playing big minutes on this team. Yeah. And to lose, you know, three, like, foundational rotation players for extended periods of time the way that they have. Uh, Will Barton has played two games this season. Millsap missed a huge chunk of time. Gary Harris missed a bunch of time, and they've somehow just kept humming along. And I think Jokic deserves a ton of credit for that. But um, all credit to to Mike Malone, who was like, first of all, had 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 to um, work around Jokic's defensive limitations, um, but also figure out how to make that Nuggets offense work with Jokic as a centerpiece without a traditional point guard. Um, and you know they're just getting it done, top ten on both ends of the floor. Uh, taking care of business and beating some really, really good teams along the way. Okay, and then let's end the show by talking about Executive of the Year. I personally have uh, Rob Palinka and uh, Magic Johnson, number one, for, you know, if you sign LeBron, my rule is if you sign LeBron, then you have one Executive of the Year because there is no bigger prize than signing LeBron. I got Sam Preston number two, just because he the way he sort of sorted out the mellow situation, turned that into Schroeder, who's actually been decent for them. Uh, and then some of the draft picks are actually fine to cash in. And then also Messiah Jury number three, you know, uh, getting, um, you know, Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green and $5 million for what he gave up is, is pretty impressive. Cash, you got your jury number one. Got John Horst number two. Not many people even know who John Horst is. That's the GM of the Bucks. Yeah. Uh, and then you got Kronky slash Arturas Kanisovas yeah. with the accents on top of the U and the S. Very impressive. Listen, um, I'm, a, I'm a professional, right? <laughs> yeah. You... Coach, coach has me prepared. No, but really, I, did anyone even know that that's who the Nuggets general manager was? Arturas Kanisovas? He's been coming up in a lot of like those like yeah. GM interviews. Like, you know, he always ends up being one of those. But like, he's like, he's, if I'm not mistaken, he is the guy that has that connection to the European scouting and like, just scouting as a whole, because earlier, like we, uh, like I mentioned, like the Nugget success is really just after years of really good scouting and, and drafting. What's yeah. What's uh, Tim Connolly's role with that team? I, I kind of assumed that he was like the lead basketball decision maker, but no, that's a good uh, that's a good question. Is Tim like, I think Connelly. he's the president of basketball ops, so I don't know like who that. I don't actually know who the executive of the year award yeah, goes well, to. Yeah, well, it's like, weird because, like, some team – I think it goes by who teams nominate. So, like, some teams will put their GMs up there. Some teams will put their presidents. Like, the Raptors, for example, Masai is the president. Bobby mm-hmm. Webster is the GM. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure it's Masai who gets the votes. Um, anyway, in terms of the actual uh, debate, I still can't believe Will is is putting that Palinka magic 
I'm just I'm telling you, if you sign LeBron, that's the most important thing you could do in an executive. But why do they get credit for that? Like, exactly. You signed LeBron. No, no, no. Come okay, on. Come on. Don't you know? LeBron had was at Magic's house at 12.01 on July 1st, and they I'm, had a heart-to-heart about signing Lance Stevenson. I'm to saying the Rob Babcock could have been the GM of the <laughs> okay. Lakers, and LeBron still would have signed there. That's a deep cut. That's a real deep cut. Yeah, I don't... I, I just don't think they played any part in getting him to L.A. And wow. while the Lakers have somewhat survived without LeBron, I think we're all in agreement that, again, outside of getting LeBron just because he wanted to go there, their other moves were not impressive. Okay, look, if it wasn't for Magic, if, if it was still the previous like you know management situation, which I think was Jim Buss or whatever, like, do you think LeBron's going there? Yes. yes. Yeah, probably. I, think <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. If you sign Jackson, LeBron, that's number one. I don't, I can't really, I, at this point, LeBron you can't change my mind on this, man. It's the most important thing. You sign LeBron James. It changes your profile for any team, regardless of whatever, uh-huh. especially now. And if you land LeBron, the coverage of the Lakers, everything like that, the, the relevance of the Lakers, everything is back for them. So. Will, Will could find out that it was actually Magic Johnson who defaced that LeBron mural, and he would still give him the vote <laughs> I'm cool, for man. executive of the year. As long as you got, he got LeBron to sign for four years. I mean, also, LeBron has two homes out there, and they're both worth $20 million each. But, All right, well. That was, that was uh, shout out to the summertime one. This will be that when I was I LeBron's just, <laughs> realtor. Besides whole body of work and landing a legitimate apex superstar via trade, um, like while taking a gamble of getting rid of DeMar and getting mm-hmm. Danny Green in the same deal and the way some of the young guys have developed, I just think it's finally all come together from a side of winning this award in Toronto. Yeah, and I don't know that anybody really put himself out there this past summer more than Masai did. Uh, you, you, you know, fired trading, the coach of the year. Trading a beloved franchise icon, firing another beloved franchise icon, and, and being willing to kind of turn the page on an era that had been super successful – uh, in relative terms, but um, you know, being willing to say that it wasn't good enough uh, and roll the dice on a guy that, look, I know we can say that that trade was a no-brainer, but nobody else in the league made that trade. Uh, nobody well, was willing to give up Jalen Brown. I He's going to become Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm saying, and I think for the Lakers front office, not trading for Kawhi was a huge missed opportunity. You can't trade Brandon Ingram. He's going to become Kevin Durant. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, to me, it's clearly uh, Messiah's number one. Uh, I also had John Horse number two. I just think... Explain this John Horse thing. I'm just inclined to give credit to front offices like, when they don't have a ton of wiggle room. Yeah. But they find ways to kind of tweak the roster around the margins that makes a huge difference. And I feel like the Bucks really did that. If something as small as, as adding Brooke Lopez and having the foresight to see that he could be a floor spacer for Giannis... Um, Ilyasova as well. Um, I just think that they have put like a really functional and sensible roster together around Giannis that, that you know has catapulted them to this uh, incredible success. And I think, like you said, we can assign credit uh, to a lot of different places. And Bucks have been all over our ballots for all these different awards. Giannis for MVP, Bud for Coach of the Year. Well, I mean, he hired Bud. That's another cap. There you go. There you go. And I think exactly. And and that was maybe even his most important move. Um, so, uh, you know, it was tough to envision the mat, the the uh, the Bucks going from where they were last year, which was what a forty-four win team that got bounced in the first round. Yeah. To suddenly being a you know, legitimate finals contender and the team with the best record and the best point differential in the NBA. They're like on pace for sixty wins. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Uh, so I, I think uh, their front office deserves a ton of credit for that. Um, and okay, la- last one. Yeah, you got to touch on this uh, Lawrence Frank thing because I don't think Lawrence Frank has been uh, an executive so much as he's just been a professional <laughs> stalker, man. Yeah, you're giving Lawrence Frank executive of the year for showing up at Kawhi's game. Yeah, Lawrence Frank is like right. Lawrence Look, Frank need- is paying Toronto rent just so he could like follow Kawhi around. Everywhere. That's expensive. I needed I needed a third. He's ambushing him at Tim Hortons. I needed man. a third person to fill out my ballot <laughs> okay. and. Um, well, I don't know. Again, who would be up for this award, whether it be him or Michael Winger, who is the GM, uh, right. Lawrence Frank being the president of basketball ops. But apart from stalking Kawhi Leonard all over the continent, um, <laughs> I think, again, like uh, they have just sort of done some interesting things around the margins to put uh, a successful roster together when they don't really have any blue chippers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tobias Harris is their best player. But I thought the Montrez Harrell contract alone was like one of the 
best moves of the offseason. Okay, hold on. Um, so you're putting him on here because... Drafting he, Shea. He, he drafted Shea, and then he <laughs> signed a restricted free agent I'll come out of an injury to a reasonable deal. But you won't put Palinka Magic on here for signing LeBron. That's correct. That's wild. That's <laughs> wild. I think, honestly, actually, I, I might put Sean Marks third. Okay, um, okay. Actually, I like that one, actually. Because... That's a cumulative award, though. Because what sure. he did this summer was just, like, take on, like, extra money and draft picks. But that's what you're supposed to do from a situation. Yeah, and I mean, look, he... Dinwiddie's extension it, was a pretty reasonable price. Dinwiddie's extension was great. Yeah. Um, and somehow already looks like a bargain, even though he was only signed it, like, three weeks ago. Uh, the man wants to secure the bag. Yeah, I think the the Marks thing is definitely a sort of, like, cumulative, uh, like, three-year award. Mm-hmm. Just looking at where that team started when he took over to where they are now is incredible. And would have been unfathomable at the time for them, you know, to be not only playing 500 ball and fighting for a playoff spot, but actually, like, looking toward the future and seeing something there. Uh, they have some nice young pieces, and uh, they have room to grow. So uh, that certainly wasn't the case, even remotely the case a couple of years ago. Um, I think it's pretty crazy where they've come to in such a short period of time. Cash, any last words for uh, the Nuggets front office? Yeah, uh, I'm just trying to find out who's running this organization exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> it's. I mean, that's probably not great for, if we don't know who actually runs the team. But oh, I the mean, Nuggets are having a good year. They're having a good year. Who man. to assign credit to? Yeah. Too many. There's too many managers. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Seems like. Probably not Kroenke. I mean, just from yeah, like, what I've seen from Arsenal fan TV, then he's not a favorite. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that does it for the podcast. Um, you know, as always, a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. I haven't done that in forever to remind people of saying doing that. Uh, and also to down the score app. Uh, but uh, for Wolfon, for Cash, and myself, pound the rock. Mm-hmm.